At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Good morning. I'm Ali Velshi. It is Sunday, March 13th. It is day 18 of Russia's war against Ukraine. It's 8 a.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. here in Zahan, Hungary, on the border with Ukraine, from where I've been reporting this weekend. Though it feels like there are no weekends, no let-up for the more than 246,000 Ukrainian refugees who have fled here to Hungary out of the nearly 2.7 million refugees in total. What you are watching now is more arrivals. Another train has just come in from Ukraine. It has come in from the, the, the town of Chop, which is just over the border where they go through border formalities and then they come here they are received by volunteers uh, and and they're coming off the trains very slowly because they are now being greeted at the train by police who uh, are helping them get off the train and are determining what help they need they then come across here you'll slowly see people coming across Everybody who comes across is greeted by a volunteer in a red vest or a green vest or an orange vest. These are typically church groups uh, that are greeting these people. They've got food. They help them with their bags. They help them with their children. They've got medication. They've got water. And then they are taken inside the train station if they need to go there to determine what their next uh, step is. There are animals coming out. There are little children you can see uh, coming out. And the police are uh, literally escorting everybody who needs help uh, into this area where they're getting help. They, generally speaking, don't stay here in Zahon. They go to other places because they're, this is a small town. They are on to Budapest, Vienna, Warsaw, or other places uh, in, in Western Europe. This situation that we're covering only stands to get worse with new news that we have. Breaking news on the war front this morning. Russia has escalated this war in a major way, conducting missile strikes overnight, targeting a base that is 12 miles from Ukraine's border with the NATO ally Poland. That base is also known as the International Peacekeeping and Security Center. It regularly hosts NATO instructors, soldiers, and drills. It's 20 miles northwest of Lviv, which is a city we've been reporting from uh, that has been considered safer, where refugees from central and eastern Ukraine have been fleeing. Many of uh, our reporters have been reporting from there. In fact, we're going to go there very shortly. In this attack overnight, at least 35 people were killed, 134 injured in western Ukraine near the NATO border. Notably, it's part of a pipeline which NATO and other foreign countries use to funnel weapons and other aid into Ukraine, a pipeline which Russia said yesterday was fair game to attack. And those attacks seem to have begun. The attack also comes hours after the United States announced an additional $200 million in arms and equipment for Ukraine. Also in western Ukraine, Russia has conducted more missile attack attacks on the airport in uh, Ivano-Frankivsk, which is the second such attack on that particular site in three days. That's about 120 miles from where I am here in Hungary. New video, which we must warn you is tough and disturbing to watch, shows wrapped bodies being taken off a cart and buried in a mass grave in the town of Bucha, 
which is just outside of Kiev. In the video, people say there are three more mass graves just like this one. The person recording said that they are filming the, quote, consequences of war. And in the case of Putin's war, that means mass graves for civilians. In Irpin, the town directly south of Bucha, also a suburb of Kiev, the AP reports that bodies now line the streets waiting, if even possible, to be picked up for mass burial. Other mass graves have been documented in Mariupol, the southern Ukrainian city that's been under unrelenting Russian attack and has been without electricity, water, gas, food, and medical and other supplies with essentially all communications cut off. I am running into people from that part of Ukraine who have arrived here in Hungary and they say they have no contact with the family members they have left behind. Yesterday, Doctors Without Borders released audio from a conversation with a staff member in the city reporting that remaining residents, of which there remain thousands, have been without food, water and medication, quote, for more than a week, maybe even 10 days, and that people are dying, quote, because of lack of medication, and that many people who were killed and injured are just lying on the ground. Neighbors are digging the hole in the ground and putting their bodies inside. An AP journalist reports witnessing tanks firing at a nine-story apartment building in the city and was with a group of hospital workers who came under sniper fire. There are reports that humanitarian convoys destined for the city have been attacked and pillaged by Russian forces. Elsewhere in the east, Ukraine's National Railroad says that a train full of people fleeing came under fire and that at least one person, the conductor, was killed. In his nightly address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the entire country is now the front line and that, quote, a few small towns just don't exist anymore, adding, quote, they are just gone, and the people are gone. They are gone forever. Zelensky spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett yesterday, who's tried to act as a mediator. Zelensky reportedly said he was open to meeting with Russia's Putin in Israel, but only if a ceasefire was in place. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, and the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, held a 90-minute call with Putin yesterday where they pushed for an immediate ceasefire per the French government, which described the talks as, quote, very frank and difficult, adding that Putin showed no willingness to stop the war and sounded, quote, determined to attain his objectives. According to the Kremlin's account of the call, Putin gave the German and French leaders a briefing on the, quote, real state of affairs in Ukraine. Joining me now from Lviv, Ukraine, is NBC's Molly Hunter and in Zhezhov, Poland, NBC's Kelly Kobieja. Molly, I'm going to start with you. The overnight missile strike on the Yavoriv military facility is about 20 miles from Lviv. What more can you tell us about it? Yeah, Ali, as you said, this is a big escalation. This is the most Western attack that uh, the Russians have launched in Ukraine. And I am in Lviv. We woke up to air raid sirens about 3.30 a.m. And Ali, we did hear about two hours ago uh, more air raid sirens. As you mentioned, the death toll has gone up rapidly in the last hour. So 35 people have been killed, 134 have been injured, according to the Ukrainian officials in the area. Uh, the Russians launched 30 cruise missiles. They do say they shot down many of them, but still that is a massive death toll. I just want to show you where we are, Ali. Uh, we are at a different train station, something you're very familiar, of course, people waiting in line here to the buses to Poland, uh, of course, to trying to get to where Kelly is, to get to where other people uh, Excuse me, I think my IFB just dropped, Ali, but I'm going to stay on with you. And, Ali, I do also have an update on Mariupol, on that humanitarian corridor that we have been talking about so much. The whole uh, agreement with these ceasefires uh, with 
Mariupol and uh, other uh, besieged cities is that humanitarian aid gets in and civilians get out. We have not heard any success with civilians getting out of Mariupol, but that humanitarian corridor, uh, that humanitarian convoy that has been traveling overnight with a hundred tons of uh, humanitarian aid, we believe is two hours from Mariupol. So we'll keep you posted if we hear anything more on that, Ali. All right, uh, Molly, thank you. By the way, we, we operate, we hear our control rooms and each other with these earpieces, as you know, and the communication becomes difficult in places like this. Sometimes it falls out. That's what's happened uh, with Molly, but she's going to continue reporting for us in Lviv. Let's go to Poland. NBC's Kelly Kobieja is there. Kelly, you have generally been watching, as I have, the refugees coming in, but now uh, something more serious has developed. You have had an attack that is 12 miles off the Polish uh, border, Poland being a NATO country, Poland being a country that's armed with Patriot missiles that can intercept missiles that come in. This is getting dangerously close to that war between Russia and NATO that NATO and the West have been trying to avoid. Yeah, and we have not yet heard from the Polish government on this strike in western Ukraine, but we have been talking to people in Poland over the past several days. And, you know, we've, we've talked about how they've opened their homes, opened their hearts, come out in the tens of thousands to volunteer. And part of the reason is because they are so concerned about this country being drawn into war. They're worried that they could be next. We we're actually at a village just five miles from the border yesterday. It's a village of about 500 people. People. They've taken in 80 refugee families, and we spoke to an elderly, uh, an older couple, retired couple in their 70s, and they said the reason that they took in refugees and still have more space in their home is because they're they're worried that they could be in this position soon. They can see Ukraine from their border. They're worried that as the if uh, the war in fact does move farther west, closer to Poland, that that they could uh, mistakenly uh, perhaps be. Uh, hit by uh, by a strike. Uh, there's a lot of concern in this country, even though it's a NATO country, they feel slightly more confident, more uh, secure because uh, they are part of NATO. But still, nerves are very rattled in this country and have been for days. This strike in western Ukraine will only add to that. And then, Ali, we're talking about refugees coming over the border. People are still coming. Uh, and there's also concern uh, that even that those flows of people could increase even more now that uh, there's been a strike in, in western Ukraine. Ali. Uh, Molly, uh, you were saying we have not heard from the Polish government yet, uh, but give us some sense of the fact that it is a NATO country. Um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Kelly, not Molly. Uh, you, you've said you haven't heard from the Polish government yet. Uh, give us some sense, though, about how this all works, because obviously it's not an attack on a NATO country. It, Twelve miles is pretty close, but it's not in Poland. Uh, but NATO is on high alert for these kinds of things, and and if there's anything that feels like an attack on a NATO country, it, it uh, triggers a NATO response. They, it's not immediate, but they meet and they make a decision as to whether that is to be considered an attack and whether there should be a NATO-wide response. That's right. Uh, if there is some sort of attack on NATO, uh, on Poland, if perhaps there's there's an explosion on this side of the border, then that would have to be investigated. Is that uh, a, a purposeful strike on Poland? Is that an errant strike uh, on part of Ukraine? And then uh, a meeting among NATO members, does that mean that there has been an attack on NATO? Is there some sort of military response that is required? And then, of course, the stakes go 
you know, through the roof. Then we're talking about all NATO countries, including the United States, having to respond, having to retaliate and defend uh, their NATO partners. We've heard uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, and and the president say that every inch of NATO uh, territory will be defended. And that strike today uh, or in the early morning hours was only about 20 miles uh, from the Polish border. So you can see how um, these things could, uh, uh, you know, even even a mistake, even a, a slightly off uh, target strike uh, could come perilously close to a NATO country and bringing all of NATO uh, into this conflict. Very, very dangerous times, Ali. Yeah, very, very frightening uh, across NATO countries, including Hungary, where I am, where people uh, would like to think that they are safer because they have this uh, joint defense agreement, uh, the, the largest military uh, joint defense agreement in, in the world. Uh, but as these things get closer, when we measure them in miles, it becomes problematic. Uh, Kelly, thanks very much for your reporting. Molly, uh, in Lviv as well. We'll stay very close to you over the course of the next few hours. Joining me now is Sudarshan Raghavan. He is a correspondent at large for The Washington Post. He's reported on conflicts and upper risings for decades, traveling to more than 65 countries for work. He remains in uh, Kiev. So there, son, what's the situation there? Uh, hi, Ali. Good to be with you. Uh, well, the situation in Kiev right now, it's you know, there's been less bombings in the past few days, but that doesn't mean the tragedy hasn't ended by any means. In fact, people uh, are fleeing the, uh, you mentioned earlier, the towns of Bucha and Irpin. There's hundreds of people still fleeing both those towns every day. I was, I was in one location yesterday on the front line between Irpin and Bucha. On one side was Ukrainian forces and about 700 meters down with the Russians. And in between, people, refugees were, displaced people were walking, uh, parents and with their uh, uh, fathers and daughters and others carrying their bags were walking down this road uh, that was filled with the wreckage of uh, Russian tanks. They, they walked past corpses of Russian soldiers all the way to the Ukrainian positions. And then after that, they, they went on to, to Kiev. And that's happening every day still. Let's talk about uh, this situation in Kiev. For people on the outside, what we've been hearing, and I keep running into uh, people who are from Irpin or places around Kiev and who have managed to get out. But for a lot of people, a lot of uh, Ukrainians, they are heading into Kiev because they feel that's safer than being in the suburbs as the Russians sort of start to close in on that city, which we're told um, could be complete in, in, uh, in less than 10 days. Well, you know, I would take that with a grain of salt, actually. From what I've seen, certainly in in areas in the, especially in the north north of the capital, the Ukrainian forces are, are putting up a very stiff resistance to the Russians' uh, forces, and they've yet to surround completely the capital. There's def they're definitely in the north, and they're moving in the towards from the northeast coming in, and some aspects from, from the western side, but they're not. They haven't surrounded the south yet, so. So people right now, yes, they're fleeing the northern area, northern suburbs of Kiev, uh, places like, uh, like Irpin and Bucha, which are considered suburbs, although they are their own cities. Uh, they've been coming into Kiev, uh, to the capital. Some have been remaining. Others have been heading westwards to leave, but, uh, but a lot more also going southwards uh, towards uh, Kozin and other towns further below, farther below where there has been uh, far less attacks. So it's definitely a, a mixed picture here. 
Uh, and so, Darsan, you, you've been posting stuff on, on Twitter. We've been hearing from people who come in here, and the stories are horrific in some of those places outside of Kiev about the shelling of residential areas, about people who are being killed. Um, it, it's, it's hard to make sense of, of how bad it can be, but you've been seeing that, and you've been reviewing some of this video. It, video. it does seem that there are civilians being killed. It does see, feel like there are, it does seem that there are actually residential areas uh, that are being targeted. Absolutely. I mean, increasingly, day by day, the line between combatants and non-combatants is being blurred. I mean, I've visited uh, plenty of areas uh, in and around Kiev that have been a are without doubt residential areas. I've interviewed families who are without doubt civilians uh, who and who've lost children and wives and grand and mother mother-in-laws and and so on. Just yesterday, there was a report uh, by the Ukrainian authorities uh, of a village east of Kiev uh, in which uh, uh, Russian troops allegedly shot seven people trying to flee a village, including a child. So all these reports are surfacing daily, even though, you know, the, the bombing, the bombardments of Kiev is significantly less over the past few days than in other cities around Ukraine. So, so what about the, the, the siege idea? Tell me about that, because U.S. intelligence says that w- when and if the Russians are able to to close that city off, supply lines close, obviously evacuation corridors uh, close, and then Kiev exists on uh, on what it's got in it. What, what do we know about that? How well stocked is Kiev? Are they preparing for the siege of Kiev? Um, absolutely. They're definitely preparing for it. I mean, we are starting to see some shortages around the capital, definitely of medicines, for example, uh, as well as you, know, if you go to grocery stores. Many of them you know, are, are just the shelves have been depleted. Uh, people are waiting in long lines for gas. Uh, they you know, they're whenever they can find a grocery or a bread store open, they line up to stock up. At the same time, the people, the Ukrainian forces, including these volunteers known as territorial defense forces, they're essentially civilians who have now been handed weapons and are now guarding the capital. They're they're setting up they're setting up barricades of tires, sandbags, even trucks and you know armored personnel vehicles. I, in one place, I even saw two. I've seen subway trains come together to block roads to prevent any Russian tanks from entering the capital. Uh, people are making Molotov cocktails and 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 other uh, uh, other other forms of preparation. So they're definitely preparing for a possible siege, a possible uh, invasion of the capital by Russian forces. So, our son, stay safe. I know you know you know your way around these uh, kinds of conflict zones, but this one seems uh, uniquely serious and dangerous. So, their son Raghavan is a correspondent at large for the Washington Post, joining us from Kiev. The United Nations reports that nearly 2.7 million refugees have now fled Ukraine since Russia invaded, with about half of them being children. Very obvious when you look around where we are to see how many children are actually here. After the break, we're going to go underground to the subway stations that have been turned into bunkers where Ukrainian families are seeking safety. And Ukraine's former president, Petro Poroshenko, has, like many other Ukrainians, taken up arms to defend his country. He's going to join us later in the show. That's all ahead on Velshi, live from the Hungarian-Ukrainian border.
Russia's war against Ukraine has forced civilians to find refuge in a variety of places that they normally wouldn't look. Bomb shelters, bunkers, and train tunnels. NBC's Matt Bradley takes us underground, where many Ukrainians are now camping out, and looks at the small signs of hope beneath the cities that are under siege. Under constant shelling from above, life in Ukraine has moved down below. For two weeks, this family in Kyiv made this their new home. We give him a hug, a kiss. We say that it'll come to an end soon, she says. We're staying nearby our house. We're not leaving this city. They sleep on mats. Their food is in jars. Their water in bottles. For some, this is the only life they've ever known. These babies were born in a shelter in the southern city of Kherson. And there's a lyricism to life underground. Even a bit of drama. Actors in the city of Ivano-Frankivsk perform a play about war as a real one rages above. Often the bomb shelters are improvised, like here in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city. We were there right when the bombs started falling. Yesterday, this was a subway station, but today the trains have stopped and people have flooded down here seeking refuge and safety. They're terrified and they don't know what's next. When Veronica woke up to the sound of bombs, she didn't know where to go. She heard about the metro from her friends on Instagram. Are you going to spend the night down here in the subway? Yeah, I have a child, 1.7 years old, and a sister, 3.5 years old. And we don't just feel safe, you know, risking with our kids, trying to live anywhere. So for now, we're here. Veronica has left Ukraine. She told us she's in Berlin. The trains here don't run anymore, but you can still get around town underground. Dark days, but Ukrainians hope there'll soon be a light at the end of the tunnel. Matt Bradley, NBC News, Zhutomer, Ukraine. Thanks to Matt Bradley for that reporting. Right after the break, I'm going to be joined by Ukrainian Parliament member Lisa Yasko, who is appealing to the international community for help. And later, I'll talk to the former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, who's dug in in Kyiv, committed to defending his country from the Russian invasion. This is Velshi, live from Zahon, Hungary, on the border with Ukraine. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. All right, I'm joining you from uh, Zahon, Hungary. It's a border town. It's where the trains, there's another border town right on the other side of the Ukrainian border where uh, the refugees come in and they, they do their customs formalities. Then they arrive here. The, the border is right behind me. Uh, people are coming to seek refuge amid the Russian invasion of Ukraine. My next guest left Ukraine to go to France to speak to the European Parliament on behalf of Ukraine after spending the last two weeks inside the country, defending her country. And her main message to Europe 
Europe is, quote, there might not be tomorrow for many Ukrainians if we do not act today. Joining me now is Lisa Yasko. She's a member of the Ukrainian parliament. She's in Strasbourg, France, uh, on an official visit to the European Parliament and the Council of uh, Europe. Lisa, thank you for being with us. Uh, first of all, uh, it was quite a journey for you to get out of Ukraine to get to France. Um, are you getting a, a, a proper reception from the European Parliament? Because what you are saying is what we are seeing. We, we've got uh, 2.7 million refugees. There was an initial estimate that it would be 5 million. There are now concerns that it'll, it, it'll even be worse than that. And the stories from in Ukraine are getting more and more dire by the moment. Well, I'm sure that Europe has never been united uh, so strongly as it is right now. We feel that, all Ukrainians, I feel it personally. But, of course, the pace of some decisions is not as fast as we would like it to be. And uh, we are calling for closing the sky for military assistance. We are calling for stopping trade with Russia for oil and gas embargo. And it all takes time. And some governments are reluctant, are not brave enough, uh, thinking that it will provoke Putin. But in fact, this is not true, because Putin invents reasons. It's not really links to what is the reaction from uh, different uh, NATO or non-NATO countries. Um, I was also crossing the border where you are right now, uh, near Hungary and Slovakia, very heartbreaking moments, uh, very hard to see so many refugees. I also welcome many people here in France coming from Ukraine, especially from the Kiev suburbs. All of them are in quite a bad shape, mental shape. Many of children are very traumatized. And I honestly, at this point, I have no idea how to treat that all. And only peace can change that. Um, but devastating news are coming every day. And uh, we don't know when it's going to stop. So it's it's very hard right now. Le- there has certainly been a feeling in Europe, and, and, and you have been talking to some of these people, that they don't want to escalate. They don't want to bring NATO into a direct war with Russia. But we have had this news overnight uh, about a, uh, a missile that has uh, a missile attack on a, a base inside Ukraine, west of uh, Lviv, about 12 kilometers, 12 miles from the border with Poland, which does have um, anti-aircraft uh, batteries, anti-missile batteries, Patriot missiles and things like that. But this thing is getting very, very close. Do you think that has an impact on on the European members of parliament who you're talking about, that this battle was is not about a little part of eastern Ukraine that Russia says uh, they are there to protect Russian speakers? This is now all over Ukraine, including on NATO's border. Definitely. I'm sure that many countries and governments and parliamentarians in different European countries uh, understand that there should be very strong security measures. I'm talking now about the military and different security tools that should be used uh, and very, very quickly prepared. Um, but as I said, unfortunately, some of that things come a little bit too late. We could prevent this um, tragedy and this invasion, invasion, but unfortunately, some of the Western actors were, were too late. But now, it's, it's better late than never, of course. So, of course, there is a hope. But um, another problem, the humanitarian problem and the number of refugees is, is growing. 
And I'm sure that um, almost every European government now understands that it's better and it's important to help Ukraine to protect now uh, and to ensure peace in some future, possible future, because then there are like there will be millions of people, uh, re refugees coming to the countries, and it's already a problem because it's very hard to find accommodation anywhere. And uh, people are coming and coming, and especially after two days bombed in the west of Ukraine, you know that so many people were leaving other parts of Ukraine to the west, but now in the west it's also not safe. So the situation is pretty bad. I, I want to ask you, you talk about no-fly zones, and you and I have talked about this before, and that's obviously a sticking point uh, with the West and, and the other weaponry, including the uh, airplanes that, that Poland has discussed. But you also mentioned oil and gas purchases. Um, uh, America has ceased oil and gas purchases and trade with Russia, but America doesn't get as much oil from Russia as Europe does. The countries of Europe do. Hungary, where I am, Germany, uh, Italy, these are all countries that are highly dependent on those exports from, uh, from Russia. Uh, how how is that discussion going? How is it that you are able to talk to these European Parliament members and say, yes, your people will feel pain, uh, but the consequence of not feeling that pain at the gas pump or or in terms of heating oil may be the disappearance of Ukraine as an independent country and Russia uh, expanding further into Europe? Well, these kind of discussions are in process, and I'm sure that they will reach some important results uh, because the people on the ground in different societies, including German societies, are demanding uh, from their governments actually to impose that uh, embargo. Uh, and it would also give opportunities for the private sector in other countries to grow and uh, to be less dependent on Russia. So I'm sure that it's coming, but the question is when and how brave uh, some uh, governments are to make it faster, uh, even when it comes with uh, quite significant uh, economic losses. But uh, this is what we need right now uh, to, if we want to have secured in a, in a different way. I here about the security, about uh, economy, about everything. Lisa Yasko, thank you uh, for your time today. I hope you meet with success in your discussions with the European Parliament. Lisa Yasko is a member of the Ukrainian Parliament. I want to show you now, we've got breaking news that we've been telling you about this morning. This is new video showing the aftermath of an overnight Russian, Russian missile strike on a military base that is roughly 12 miles from Ukraine's border with Poland. Poland is a NATO country. This base is known as the International Peacekeeping and Security Center. It regularly hosts NATO instructors, soldiers, and military drills. What we now know is that at least 35 people were killed in that attack, and at least 134 have been injured. It's notably part of the pipeline which NATO and other Western countries have been using to funnel weapons and aid into Ukraine. Vladimir Putin said very clearly that pipeline and those convoys that take that aid are fair game for attack, and it now looks like he has lived up to his word on that. We will continue to follow this story. Yesterday, uh, while I was here in Zahon, I spoke with a man named Oliver, who's aiding refugees from Ukraine. He's a Lutheran pastor from Germany. His upbringing in the midst of heavily divided Berlin influenced his decision to leave home and offer assistance on this side of Europe. We make this analysis and said, well, I think Hungary is the main place to go, the most important place to go. 
because Poland seems to work and we had good contacts to Romania and so we decided to get here. But I want to talk also a little bit about my heart because, you know, I was born in 1965, yeah? And when I grew up, I grew up in the situation of growing peace. The wall of Berlin went down and I was so shocked when the war began together with my friends that we said we have to go there and to do something and just to help. And so we had the idea we'd take a little team together of translators and come here. And at first we thought perhaps we are just catastrophic tourists, you know, mm -hmm. but when we came here, we saw the help is really needed. And so we're here already for two weeks. You're looking at pictures who, of people who are ready to board a train west to other points in Hungary and uh, and to Budapest. Over the last week or so, you've seen me in different towns and villages along Hungary's eastern border with Ukraine, where refugees escape via train, via bus, car, or on foot. They're fleeing what one woman described to me as hell on earth. With way stations like the one I'm at, uh, they're just stops along a grueling journey with an uncertain destination. Many of the images you see show refugees either fleeing a war-torn Ukraine or arriving in a neighboring country where they receive food, water, clothing, and shelter. What you don't see is the in-between, the packed train rides, the miles of walking while dragging only the belongings they have the strength and arms to carry, often food and supplies for their children who are too young to carry anything themselves, waiting in lines for transport or at a border crossing for food or for drink for hours in the bone-chilling cold. The plight of a refugee is thankfully unimaginable for most of us, and there are more than two and a half million people and counting going through it right now. Hard to even conceptualize two and a half million people fleeing one country in a matter of two weeks. But these two and a half million, including those around me in Hungary, are just about 10 percent of the number of refugees in the world right now. A refugee is someone who's been forced to flee their country because of war, violence, conflict or persecution. According to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, there are currently 26.4 million refugees in the world. And like the ones we see streaming out of Ukraine, more than half of them are under the age of 18. More than two-thirds, or 68% of all refugees, originate from five countries, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar. Soon we will add Ukraine to that list, and there are many others, including uh, those displaced within their own countries, like the Uyghurs of China, removed from their homes and placed in labor camps while slowly having their culture extinguished. They are all countries that are locked in conflict or otherwise being ruled by undemocratic governments. And these are the five countries that have taken in the largest number of refugees, Turkey, Colombia, Pakistan, Uganda, and Germany. The world struggles with the idea of different people with different languages and different faiths and cultures streaming over their borders, but it shouldn't. There is one outlier here, by the way. According to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine, over 24, of the 26.4 million refugees in the world, 5.7 million are Palestinian, many of them having been refugees since 1948 largely ignored by the international community and effectively erased by Israel and the United States. 
The Ukrainian people, for the most part, have been met with great hospitality by their Eastern European neighbors during this conflict, including this country, Hungary, with a racist far-right government which was brutally cruel to the Arab and African refugees who came here seven years ago. But most of the world's refugees are not opened. They're not welcome with open arms beyond the civil society organizations, the religious based groups, the non-governmental organizations who operate in places like this to provide them with immediate needs. Now, maybe this one's different because like those trying to escape Afghanistan last year, we are watching a televised humanitarian crisis unfold before our eyes. It's much easier to care about something you can see. Over the last week, I've witnessed some of the most heartbreaking scenes that I've ever had uh, a chance to witness. I've, I've had some of the most heart-wrenching conversations of my career. What stands out for me are three things. The cruelty that we continue to show one another. Conversely, the kindness that we're capable of showing one another with strangers helping strangers. And finally, and most importantly, the strength of the human spirit, the will that these brave people have to survive and one day return home despite having lost almost everything. Because all refugees dream of going home, and most never will. What Europe and the world have shown these refugees is right and good. It's what we owe one another as humans. But in this moment, if bearing witness to this tragedy has opened your eyes to the unique suffering of a refugee, let's make sure to remember and help the other 27 million refugees around the world who are every bit as deserving of our attention, our money, our political support, and our humanity. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees estimates that nearly 2.7 million people have fled Ukraine since the start of the Russian invasion. As you can see on this map, the vast majority, almost 1.7 million people, have escaped to Poland. And I, I will say, Poland's got a much more uh, structured system for receiving these refugees than where I am in Hungary, where it's mostly civil society. More than 246,000 have taken refuge here in Hungary. It's the second largest grouping. Joining me now is David Miliband. He's a former foreign secretary for the United Kingdom. He currently serves as the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, which oversees relief efforts in more than 40 countries affected by the war. And, and, and David, I, I wanted to say what I just said in the last uh, segment to remind people that if you find this shocking and you find it offensive that people are, are like this and they have escaped their homes with what they can carry, this is one-tenth of the number of refugees in the world. And I don't even know, that might be a conservative estimate, but we've got 27 million displaced people and refugees in the world, all of whom suffer something similar. Yes, it was a truly brilliant piece, uh, Ali. Your emphasis on the cruelty of war, the kindness of strangers, and the courage of the refugees was very powerful indeed. You're right to stress that Ukraine uh, refugees will become a part of the new top table for refugee uh, countries and that the countries like Poland will uh, be at the top of the table for hosting refugees. But you're also right to say 90% of refugees are not from Ukraine, 95%. And secondly, you also mentioned in passing people who are refugees in their own country, so-called internally displaced, whom there are about 45 million. And that's how you get the figure that the total number of people displaced by war and conflict, we're not talking about economic migrants here, people who are displaced by war and conflict is about 80 million in total, a world record since World War II. And what that speaks to is the fact that there are more wars, civil wars going on around the world 
uh, than at any time since the end of the Cold War in 1990. And it also speaks to the uh, fact that internal displacement should be seen alongside uh, refugee status when you cross a border as demanding help. There's one other point, just by way of introduction. It's generally poor countries that are hosting refugees, not America, not European countries. It's the poorer countries in the world, and I think that's sobering as well. What would you like the world to to understand about migration and refugees? It is inherently thought of, uh, particularly in the Western world, as uh, invasive, as dangerous, as things that uh, that neutralize or uh, dilute a country's culture. It's a difficulty in Europe because so many of these countries identify with the language that they speak, that people think if you bring these other people in, they'll, they'll change our culture. I, I know you've argued for just thinking about migration in the world differently. We, we, it's not going to stop. We're going to end. We're going to have lots more migration in the world, either because of politics or climate or things like that. How, how do you argue that people should think about this? I think there are two things that are very important. First of all, the system failure when it comes to diplomacy needs to be addressed. Because when people are fleeing for their lives, traumatized in the way that you've described so powerfully this morning and in your previous reports. Uh, that is a terrible way to start a new life. The second thing I would emphasize, though, is that these people are contributors. My goodness, if you're able to flee for your life, you're determined to make a go of your second chance. And all the evidence from around the world is that if you get kids into school, if you get adults into work, they integrate and they contribute. And that's why I always try and avoid the word of the, the word, quote unquote, burden when it comes to hosting refugees. What I talk about is countries fulfilling their responsibility. And if you think about it in those terms, then poorer countries need the support of richer countries to finance the integration of refugees. But richer and poorer countries need to use the best available evidence, which we now have, as a result of 40 years of the International Rescue Committee's work here in the United States. We know what works, and we need to put it into practice to make these people effective contributors. They become patriotic and productive citizens for the obvious reason that they fled for their lives. I, I uh, greeted a woman who got off the train from Hungary yesterday, and I asked her what she was going to do, and she said, I'm alive and I've got my hands. I will find work. That that, that idea of people uh, who leave their countries uh, having a, a, a remarkable determination is true. The other thing that I meet a lot of is, is people around here who've come from other parts of the world to help, literally. I met an Israeli woman who just who was watching it on TV. She came in. I've met all sorts of people. They're Americans, Germans, all sorts of people. But my uh, my viewers ask me on Twitter, what can I do? What what can people who are watching this do to help this situation and the, the situation of the other 27 million refugees or the 45 million internally displaced people? Yes, the truth is that the civil society organizations, the state organizations that you've met in Europe are very strong. And so I would say there's a couple of things that people can do this morning. One, they should learn about the global issues. They can visit rescue.org, the IRC website, and they can see how this is a global problem. Uh, secondly, I'd urge them, as, if they're in the United States, uh, to think about their local community. The International Rescue Committee operates in 25 cities across the U.S., and that's where, frankly, volunteering can be very effective immediately, by being a kid, helping an adult, putting someone, giving someone a chance for a job interview. So there are local volunteering opportunities here in the U.S. And the third thing, I have to say this because I am leading a non-governmental organization, I hope those who are able will think about donating. Because we really need to make sure that the government efforts of the world are also supplemented by private efforts. We really appreciate it. 
Uh, I, I do want to direct my viewers to an article that you wrote for Time magazine about how what is happening here is not an aberration. There's a lot of this going on in the world. David Miliband, thanks as always for your uh, analysis and your important uh, you. contribution to this. David is a former UK foreign, foreign secretary and the president and CEO of the International Rescue right. Committee. Those of you wondering how to help the people of Ukraine, the International Rescue Committee has a number of resources, as David just talked to, uh, talked to you about. Head to rescue.org to make a donation or to get involved. Our next guest has been entrenched in Russian and Ukrainian affairs under two different U.S. presidential administrations and as an ambassador in Kyiv. William Taylor joins us after the break. This is Velshi live from Zahon, Hungary, on the border with Ukraine. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. We're back with you uh, from Zahan, Hungary, on the Ukrainian border. Joining me now is William Taylor. He's a former United States ambassador to Ukraine during the George W. Bush and Obama administrations. He's also the former charge d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev in 2019. He's currently a vice president at the U.S. Institute of Peace, overseeing Russia and Europe. Ambassador, good to see you again. Wow, you know, you and I have been talking regularly, and yet each day um, something more develops. And we've had Two very serious developments uh, in, in the last few hours. One is that a uh, Russian missile strike has come very, very close to the NATO border uh, with, with Poland, 12 miles from that border. And the other is this refugee crisis is, uh, is, is moving at a faster sp uh, rate than we expected, and the humanitarian crisis inside the country is growing more dire. Has that changed the way you're thinking about how the West and NATO should be responding in this moment? Ali, it just emphasizes how important it is that we support Ukraine right now. Ukraine is on the front line of the of this of this battle, this fight, this war that it didn't choose, that the Russians imposed on it when they invaded first in 2014 and now in 2022. So it is really important to us that Ukraine win this battle. It's really important that we provide all the resources we can so that they can fight this decisive battle, which is going to be around Kiev. The, the refugee crisis that you're doing a great job demonstrating, illustrating, and drawing attention to is the result of this war that the Russians have imposed on Ukraine. So Ukrainians need to win this. We need to support them. They are fighting our war. Ambassador, we are reporting on hospitals that have been attacked, uh, uh, residential areas that have been attacked. These things are not fair game um, in war. They're, they're often innocent people do die in a war, but this is not a war, war that Ukraine wanted any part of. Does this, this crossing over into the line of, of war crimes determine a different approach that NATO has to take, regardless of whether Ukraine is a member of NATO? Uh, you're exactly right. These clearly war crimes. Um, and this also illustrates to me that the Russians and Mr. Putin in particular may be desperate. I mean, he's resorting to this bombardment of cities, this just gratuitous killing of civilians. Um, this is not this is not a, a well thought out campaign. This is a war crime. He may be desperate. He may be running out of time. His army may be running out of ammunition. 
This is the time for all the NATO nations to stand up, provide additional support, weapons, ammunition to the Ukrainians while we can still get it to them in Kyiv, move that, that those ammunition, all that supplies up there so that they can hold out and win that battle of Kyiv. They need to hold on to Kyiv. I just spoke to a member of parliament uh, from Ukraine who has gone to Strasbourg to speak to the European Parliament. And in addition to the no-fly zones and, and, and more uh, military equipment they're asking for, they are asking for the European countries to stop their imports of Russian oil and gas, something America's done but, but uh, Europe hasn't done. That's obviously a harder thing for these European countries to do because of how determined they are. But can they be convinced to do so? Ali, they may be convinced. Um, they, you know, the Europeans are really stepping up. Europeans are making major changes to their foreign policy, their defense policy. They are they are turning around and recognizing the threat to them. And they are stepping up not only their military support for Ukraine, but also their vulnerability. They're addressing their vulnerability to the Russian energy blackmail. And so they are they're they're taking big steps on natural gas, reducing it dramatically. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's expensive. And it'd be expensive for us as well. But they are already stepping up. They're showing it can be done. They're showing how important it is to defeat Mr. Putin right there in Ukraine. Ambassador, we're always grateful for your analysis and your expertise. Uh, Bill Taylor is the former United States ambassador to Ukraine during the Obama and Bush administrations. Don't go anywhere. Another hour of Velshi live from Zahon, Hungary begins right now. Good morning. It is Sunday, March the 13th. I'm Ali Velshi. It is 2 p.m. here in Zahon, Hungary, 3 p.m. across the border in Ukraine. Uh, Russia's brutal war against Ukraine rages on for an 18th day. Just hours ago, according to Ukraine, Russia staged a major escalation, striking a military base just 12 miles from Ukraine's border with the NATO ally Poland. This is a move that comes perilously close to an attack on a NATO country that could compel a military response by the world's largest military alliance, something that the United States and its NATO allies have tried to avoid. Until now, most of the reports we'd been getting out of Ukraine had come from the southern, eastern, and northern perimeters of the country, where Russian forces have focused their attacks, which is why many of the refugees fleeing the country have been traveling west to countries like Hungary and Poland. But overnight, according to the mayor of Lviv, eight missiles hit a Ukrainian military base lo located just 12 miles from the Polish border and about 20 miles west of Lviv, where many refugees have traveled through in the past two and a half weeks to get to safer locations in Western countries. What you're watching now is new video from that attack on the military base, which regularly hosted NATO instructors, soldiers, and military drills. City officials say 35 people have been killed. 134 others were injured in those attacks. Notably, the base was used by NATO and other foreign countries to funnel weapons and other aid into Ukraine. And that is something which Vladimir Putin said yesterday was fair game to attack. And it looks like he's done so. This morning's bombing follows attacks on other targets in western Ukraine the past few days. On Friday, Russian airstrikes fired missiles at the military airfields in Luitsk and Ivano-Frankivsk. Four soldiers were killed at the attack on Luitsk, which rattled a region in Ukraine that had been thought of as a relative safe haven. Until now, most of the fighting had been happening in the eastern half of the country and around the capital city of Kyiv. Diplomats, journalists and civilians trying to get away from the worst of the fighting 
retreated to western cities like Lviv. But this weekend's attacks may have just upended that feeling of relative safety. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is not likely to be surprised by this morning's attack. He had a lot to say this weekend as he held a press conference and continued to keep in touch with international leaders. In remarks yesterday, he warned that Russia would be inflicting, quote, a new stage of terror, end quote, in his country. That comment was partially in response to the alleged abduction of the mayor of Melitopol by Russian forces on Friday. Yesterday, thousands of people took to the streets in Melitopol to protest and demand the release of the mayor who has not been heard from since his abduction. Now, a woman named Helena Danilchenko has declared herself the leader of Melitopol. Melitopol's regional government, however, says she was installed as mayor by Russian forces. And just hours ago, officials said a second Ukrainian mayor from the Zaporizhia region was captured by Russians as well. Even as the Russians step up their aggression, Zelensky continues to communicate a message of defiance. He said that if Russia wants to take control of Kiev, they will have to, quote, kill us all. Later in the hour, I will be joined by Petro Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, who was succeeded by Volodymyr Zelensky. Poroshenko also remains in Kiev. I'm going to be speaking with him about the situation there. Meanwhile, in response to Ukraine's continued calls for help, the United States has authorized another $200 million in additional military assistance aid. That brings the total amount that the U.S. has committed to Ukraine to $1.2 billion so far. Yesterday, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, and the German chancellor, Olaf Schultz, spoke with Putin, demanding an immediate ceasefire. But a French official said Putin showed no signs he was willing to end the war anytime soon, which is unsurprising, considering the increasingly alarming rhetoric from Russia in the past week. The Kremlin has called the sanctions imposed against Russia by the West a declaration of economic war and has made baseless accusations that Ukraine was preparing a chemical attack. Yesterday, Russia said that convoys carrying weapons to Ukraine would be considered, quote, legitimate targets. On top of that, concerns continue to grow as the humanitarian situation worsens inside Ukraine and the dangers to civilians continues to increase. According to the Washington Post, Russian attacks have hit at least nine medical facilities around the country so far, including the one on Thursday in Mariupol. Deliberately attacking medical facilities is a war crime. Yesterday, the Associated Press captured this video of a Russian military tank identified by the white Z painted on its side, firing at a residential building in Mariupol. Firing on residential buildings is a war crime. NBC's Kelly Kobieja joins me from Zeshov, Poland. NBC's Molly Hunter joins me from Lviv, Ukraine. Uh, Kelly, I want to start with you. The military base that was attacked this morning is very close to Poland. It's 12 mi miles from Poland. Uh, that's got to have both Polish and NATO authorities on very high alert. Yeah, well, Polish nerves have been rattled for quite some time already, Ali, as we've been talking about this. Uh, there's a sense here uh, that Poland could be next. There's a real fear among uh, people, particularly in this part of Poland, that they could be drawn into this war. And this will only um, heighten those concerns and, and, and make people that much more nervous. We were at a very small village close to the border, about five miles from the border uh, yesterday. And we. this is a small town of 500. They've taken in 80 
families uh, just in this small town from Ukraine. And we spoke to a, an older couple who had taken in uh, a family of refugees. And they said, you know, we, we know we're, we're a NATO country and we, and we understand that we're part of that defensive alliance, but we're still worried. We're still worried that, that the war could come here. And if it does, we're five miles from the border. We could be in the same position. We could be evacuated from, from our homes to a different part of Poland. So there is very much a concern there. Meantime, uh, there's also a worry that this will drive even more people, maybe increase the flow of refugees out of the country. As you mentioned, that strike was 12 miles from the border. Medica border crossing uh, is the busiest border crossing in Poland. Tens of thousands come over every day. There are 80,000 nearly uh, refugees coming over uh, to Poland from Ukraine yesterday alone. Uh, so there's a real issue here about uh, people, more refugees flowing through, about the safety, frankly, of those refugees as they're moving into Poland. And then just secondly, Ali, I think we should mention there, there is increasing concern in this country about the number of people and Poland's ability to absorb them. The mayors of both Warsaw and Krakow now have said they just don't have the space. They can't accommodate everyone. They can't uh, deal with even more people coming in. And the mayor of Warsaw in particular is calling on the international community now to start some sort of uh, active, organized relocation program for these people so they have someplace safe to stay. Allie. Yeah, it's an important point you make. Of the 2.8 million people who have left, 1.7 million have gone to uh, to Poland. Uh, Molly, let's talk about the situation where you are in Lviv, uh, particularly, but in Russia writ large. First of all, this attack was about 20 miles west of where you are in Lviv. The, the refugees I'm talking to were people who went from eastern uh, and, and central, Pol uh, central Ukraine to Lviv because that was thought of as the safe spot. Exactly, Ali. And I want to just pick up on something Kelly was just talking about. So, right, we are in the west of the country. We are in Lviv. This is the destination for anyone fleeing the violence in Kiev, in Kharkiv, in those besieged uh, and very heavily bombarded cities in the east. Uh, then from here, this is a departure point to where Kelly is in Poland or to Hungary, of course, where you are, or to other European destinations. However, there are a lot of people who are just staying here. So according to the UN, two million IDPs uh, have been displaced around the country. I think the real number is much, much higher. But just here in the city, there are a lot of people who have told us that they want to wait it out, that they want to contribute to their country, that they don't want to leave. And what we're going to do this afternoon, Allie, is go talk to all of these people here. There are so many people out and about whether this has changed their calculation, whether this no longer feels safe. Now, as you mentioned, this is the westernmost attack the Russians have launched. They launched 30 cruise missiles on this military base. Uh, according to the Ukrainians, they were able to shoot down 22, so only eight actually landed. But this is a base that is used regularly by NATO, uh, including American troops, for drills. Since 2015, American troops have regularly gone there. Uh, we woke up to the air raid sirens overnight at 3.30 a.m. And again, during the day, we heard some air raid sirens at 11.30. Uh, and I wonder if this is really a sign to come and really going to rattle nerves. I got to say, though, when we heard those air raid sirens during the day here at 11.30 a.m., no one moved, Ali. And um, as those attacks, I think, get closer and closer to Lviv, if that is what happens, I think we'll start to see behavior change here and more people heading for heading for where Kelly is. Ali. 
I think you made an interesting point in there. I just spoken to, to David Miliband in the last hour and said, you know, when you think about refugees in the world, and there are 27 million of them, uh, when you add the number of displaced people in their own countries, that number more than doubles. And that's happening in Ukraine as well. There are a whole lot of people who have not left the country, but they're not in the homes uh, that they were living in. They're in a different part of the country. I, I'm worried about the two of you because these attacks are getting closer and closer to where you both are. Please keep your team safe and uh, safe and please stay safe. We will stay close to you. Kelly Kobiea in Zeshov, Poland, NBC's Molly Hunter in Lviv, Ukraine. Joining me now is Heather Conley. She's the president of the German Marshall Fund. She's also a former deputy assistant secretary of state for Europe and Eurasian affairs, where she co-led U.S. interagency efforts to enlarge NATO. Uh, Heather, uh, these developments overnight, I want to first of all uh, get your take on this. When you look at that map of where that attack took place, it says everything you need to say. That, that, that spot, that dot, 12 miles from Poland uh, could very easily be Poland, and that changes the game. So first of all, tell me about the fact that these attacks are not about uh, Vladimir Putin going into eastern uh, Ukraine and and protecting Russian speakers from uh, a genocide that he provided no evidence of. They are now attacking, attacking western Ukraine on the NATO borders. Absolutely. And and in some ways, it's surprising uh, that this hasn't happened earlier, because uh, obviously, as we're now entering day 18 of a conflict that Russia thought uh, they could seize in two days, uh, they are getting bogged down and they are trying to end the supply lines. This is a this is a major, major move to say, look, we are not going to stand for humanitarian and certainly lethal military equipment to continue to flow uh, from the West into uh, for Ukrainian forces. So this is why, Ali, that on uh, this coming week, on the 18th, NATO is going to hold an extraordinary meeting, an in-person meeting of NATO defense ministers. You will see some very forward-leaning announcements, I'm sure, to what we call thicken that uh, defensive line, the eastern flank on NATO, and probably providing some additional uh, air defense capabilities. Last week, two uh, Patriot batteries uh, uh, being moved to to the Polish uh, border. You're going to see more of this. We have to protect those supply lines to keep supplying Ukrainian military to to fight against these Russian forces. And that, you, you said the supply lines that Vladimir Putin said yesterday, the supply lines are targets. And that's exactly what happened. This was a this was a supply corridor. I guess I want to ask you from a NATO pers- perspective, what's the difference between a deliberate attack and a an accidental attack that gets near uh, NATO soil? Because because this is real close. I, I assume that uh, everybody who fires missiles has a an ability to target them exactly to where they want them targeted. But boy, Poland's nervous right now. And that was really close. Well, uh, again, what has already happened, uh, Poland can, uh, what we call Article 4 in NATO, which is a consultation process, meaning, okay, if this missile came extremely close to our border, we want an immediate consultation with other NATO allies that will protect, I I think it will mean we're going to flow more defensive equipment to Poland, perhaps to the Baltic states. Um, But what's very clear is that the alliance has to work together on this. This is not an independent decision per se that Poland would make. That's what makes 
is so strong at 30 countries. It also, you know, those decisions are more challenging at 30. But again, the alliance is very focused on ensuring that they're backing up their words, that they will defend every inch of NATO territory, that this is not in question. But Russian artillery is firing now, of course, uh, very close to the Polish border. I think that those open lines of communication that General Milley has opened uh, with the Russian chief of the general forces, uh, General Garasimov, will have to open once again and have to communicate very clearly that uh, if they get closer to this, they are now edging to something that they do not want. Uh, Heather, this is a military installation that we're looking at that was targeted. However, um, as you get that close to the border, you have lineups um, in on the uh, on the you know on our side here where Hungary is uh, on the Polish side. There are people who are lined up for hours and hours and hours to get through. Uh, it sounds like a different world, but are those people, those Ukrainians, trying to get out of their country at, at risk of attacks by Russian forces as they're trying to get out? Well, we've certainly seen where Russian forces have uh, attacked, uh, you know, during ceasefires to allow humanitarian corridors to happen. So, yes, again, uh, anything to do to create chaos in lines of communication. So civilians fleeing conflict uh, can uh, also cause a, a lot of disruption to those important supply lines. So, yes, it's it's certainly not uh, inconceivable that Russia would do this. I mean, the, the crimes against the, of humanity, the attacks on on hospitals, on civilians. Uh, we understand that, the, you know, Vladimir Putin will not stop. There is nothing that is in his way of decency that he won't do. So in many ways, we have to expand our own uh, imagination and, again, protect those supply lines, protect NATO borders, and continue the flow of, of supplies into Ukraine. I'll say this again, the longer that the Ukrainians can resist this brutality, the stronger we get every day as the West. Uh, and we, as, as Bill Taylor said earlier in your program, this is a fight we cannot afford to lose. And the Ukrainians are fighting so valiantly for all of our values. This is what this is about. So as, as we are struck by every, you know, extraordinary crime that the Russian forces commit, we have to keep our eye on the prize and that the West has to win this fight. And Ukraine is fighting for our values. Heather, thanks for your analysis. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Your expertise, Heather Conley is the German Marshall Fund president. Odessa, a Ukrainian port city on the Black Sea, is home to over one million people. Many of them are prepared to defend it from invasion with sandbags, roadblocks and weaponry. And the former Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko, is still in Kiev fighting for the capital city alongside the people he once served. He joins me later in this hour. You're watching Velshi live from Zahon, Hungary, on the border with Ukraine.
I'm back here. I'm in Zahon, Hungary. There are many ways to cross the border. The Ukrainian border is just over there. Uh, you can cross on foot. You can cross by car, in a bus, or a train. If you take the train, this is where you come. But I'm on the other side of the station just to show you what else exists over here. There are uh, volunteer groups who are helping. They've got beverages, basic things, toothbrush. I mean, you've been on a, a, a train for two or three days. There's food. There's fresh fruit. Let me give you a, a little tour and show you what else there is uh, over here. There's, there's uh, services of all types translation, medical, things like that. But this is where the food is. So you see here, there's food supplies, there's medical supplies, there's um, there, there's basic toiletries. Uh, baby food is an important thing. There's there's pet food around here because a lot of people are coming with their dogs. There's uh, catering trucks. This is a uh, veggie burger uh, stand where they'll have veggie burgers. There are a lot of people coming in here who don't eat meat. It's very popular around here to have a, a lot of meat. There's uh, This is part of World Central uh, Kitchen. Jose Andres' operation with a local food truck. They've got chicken stew you can see here with green peas and pasta. Uh, green peas stew, well, I guess it's the same thing, just written different ways. Uh, and then in here is the tent where a number of different groups, watch your step there, um, there's a, this little step up. This is the tent in which there are uh, all sorts of different offerings as well. Again, beverages, snacks, wherever you go, there's fresh fruit. Uh, Jim's just going to show you, give you a bit of a tour about the things that you can get. If you're on the run, there are prepared sandwiches. Uh, they're making sandwiches. Look at these women. They are just constantly, constantly making uh, sandwiches. They're buttering the bread, putting in meats, putting in cheese, because a lot of people get here and they just need to move off. By the way, these will be boxed and given to people so that when they get off the train, if they've got to go somewhere fast, they get a box with water, with, with baby food, with whatever they need. Um, there's some spaces for people to sit. And again, more cooking going on here. Earlier, I, I, I talked to somebody from the International Council for Game and Wildlife Preservation. These are hunters. Uh, every weekend, they go out hunting, and they cook anyway. So what they're making is, I think that's Hungarian goulash in there, right? No, this will be, it's called a bob goulash. Ah, okay. Pork knuckles, beans. pork knuckles, and beans. So there's a goulash in there, and this is the preparation for it uh, right here. So these are civil society organizations. This is not the government. There are uh, church groups here that are helping. There are volunteer organizations. There are some individuals. I keep running into people who have just come here from other parts of the world to be helpful. There uh, is a presence of the Red Cross and the uh, uh, the uh, UNICEF people are here. Uh, but generally speaking, these are civil society organizations. Not much involvement from the government. You will see if you just turn around, there are police officers. They're being very, very helpful. We've shown uh, imagery of the police officers who are helping a lot of the little kids or the families with little kids as they get off the train. So that's the situation on this side. Uh, when I come back on the other side, we want to go back into Ukraine. I'm going to be talking to another member of parliament in Ukraine who is doing what so many of those members of parliament are doing. They're not going to their offices in parliament. They're busy doing things that help their country defend itself against the attack from Russia. You're watching a special edition of Velshi from Zahon train station on the border of Hungary and Ukraine. Uh, we now have news that 2.7 million refugees have fled the violence and devastation in Ukraine so far. Some have been able to fly, drive, take trains out of the war-torn country, but many Ukrainians have needed assistance navigating their way out. And my next guest is one of those individuals who's been helping civilians to escape 
This is not her normal job, however. Joining me now from the Kyiv region is Ina Sovsan. She's a member of parliament in Ukraine. Uh, and Ina, this seems to be the standard for you members of parliament. You are all doing things that uh, are not part of what you normally do. You're taking up arms, you've had weapons training, and you have been, every time you and I talk, you are somewhere trying to get somebody out of, of, uh, of a place. Tell me what, what's going on right now. What, what's the work that you're currently involved in? Well, thank you. Uh, yes, it is extremely tense situation here, and we all are now uh, not doing what we typically do, not uh, preparing legislation, debating about the specifics of certain uh, laws, but we are doing everything in our power to help coordinate humanitarian assistance, uh, to help coordinate uh, the supplies of the protective gear to the uh, to the army, uh, evacuation of the people, uh, providing support to the territorial defense uh, in Kiev and in other regions. Uh, some of my fellow members of parliament, but particularly those that did have uh, military experience before, they are now fighting in different regions in Ukraine. Like uh, my fellow uh, member of parliament uh, from from the same party as myself, from Holos Party, Orman Kostanko, he's now fighting on the south of Ukraine, keeping the borders there, making sure that the Russians do not proceed over there. So so that is all what we are doing day, like every day, 24-7, literally our political party faction group, uh, uh, other chats with members of parliament, they never quiet. We're like communicating 24-7. We go to bed for three hours and then we we are back uh, to work. And this is our new life right now. And this is, uh, uh, yeah, this is uh, difficult. It's extremely painful, but uh, well, we do what we have to do. Just like other Ukrainians, you are seeing that, uh, that millions of Ukrainians are joining forces right now to make sure that we resist this this terrible invasion that Putin started on Ukraine. And MPs are no different from the regular Ukrainians. Uh, I just, uh, t- two days ago, I think, I was asked by a friend of a friend uh, who was saying, Ina, you are a member of parliament, you probably know some way to get into the territorial defense in Kiev, because now they are not taking any more people because they are overstuffed. Uh, I didn't wow. know other ways to wow. territorial defense. But that is just for you to understand like the level of commitment we are having here. So yes, many people are leaving in order to take care of their children mainly, but those who are staying are 100% committed to, to fighting against Russians. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing. We see uh, women with their children and sometimes elderly uh, parents coming in here. Uh, no men. I did speak to a woman yesterday who's from a suburb outside of Irpin, uh, where she said uh, they, they were told by the Russians actually to leave. They said that uh, your, your place is going to be destroyed. Uh, and they weren't able to take imagery of it. She said anybody who took a picture or video of what was going on had their phone smashed uh, by the Russian troops. You are taking a lot of pictures. You're taking a pictures of graves of destruction uh, because I, you're you're trying to show the world that these are in fact war crimes well I, I to be honest I don't always take pictures myself but many other people are taking pictures uh, and unfortunately it is indeed not always safe and I'm not sure if you have uh, reported about that uh, already but half an hour ago we learned that an American journalist uh, wearing New York Times badges was killed uh, while trying to film evacuation from Irpin. His name was uh, Brent Renault. Uh, the New York Times have already confirmed that uh, he used to collaborate with the New York Times uh, and that is a confirmed death of an American citizen who was actually trying to report on what is happening around Irpin and how people are suffering there. And he was killed wearing a big, big sign saying 
Ukraine press when he's west, and and he was killed here in Ukraine. It's a big loss for 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 the America and for us as well. But that is just showing that the Russians have no respect. They're, they're shooting at hospitals, at journalists, at children. Uh, they're just you know war monsters, and they need to be stopped. And of course, NBC is trying to confirm that reporting uh, from a member of, of this journalist's family or from his employers. But uh, to the extent that these that in the last week, uh, you know, we, you and I have talked so many times, but each day uh, the, the war crime situation seems to be getting more serious. And there are people from inside, you, many of your colleagues who are saying, all right, at this point, that line between whether or not Ukraine is a member of NATO or not is blurred by the fact that a country is experiencing war crimes, a country that had no desire to go to war, is now seeing the massive displacement of people inside the country, outside the country, targeting of hospitals, targeting of residences. Do you think that changes the minds of uh, European members of parliament or, or the EU or NATO in terms of greater sanctions or greater support? Well, we are happy to know that actually the majority of citizens of the European Union and the majority of citizens of the United States and Canada are actually supportive, greatly supportive of Ukraine. Uh, we're just waiting for that to reflect upon the decisions of their respective governments, because frankly speaking, we do not see the governments reacting enough to this uh, to this war that Putin launched. And yes, we are asking for tougher sanctions. I truly wish that the sanctions that we are seeing now against Russia were imposed in 2014. Because when Putin took Crimea, when he started the war in Donbass, he should have seen the sanctions as he is seeing right now. Then he wouldn't go to full-scale war Ukraine. And that would have been so much, uh, you know, uh, because then we heard this argument, let's not escalate. Let's give Putin a chance and let's not uh, make him escalate. And and now he escalated. So every time the West is thinking that, okay, we shall try to deal with him diplomatically. Maybe he wouldn't escalate further. Look at the map. This is how not escalating looks in Putin's eyes. So I do believe truly that uh, the West, it's, it's a extremely scary truth, but it is the truth that Putin is is a crazy man with huge army and he's in fight in war against the whole Western civilization. And it's extremely unfair that Ukrainians alone have to fight against him. Well, he already is saying that he will go further. We are hearing reports and we are hearing discussions in Russian media where Russian propaganda that we shall go to Poland next after Ukraine and we shall go to Lithuania. That is being discussed in Russian media. And I just wonder when it will be enough for the West to understand that they have to help us stop Putin here in Ukraine until he goes further into the uh, European Union and NATO countries. Anna Sostan, I know you've got a lot of things to do, so we always appreciate when you take time to let the world know about what's going on inside Ukraine. Anna Sostan is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. Yesterday, I spoke to a man who's being literal when it comes to comfort food for those uh, arriving in Hungary uh, from Ukraine. His name is Tamash. He's a recreational hunter. Hunting's popular all along the wooded areas of Eastern Europe, which are rich with game. And one of the things hunters do around here is enjoy good, hot, cooked food. Now they're putting their efforts to sharing that food with the refugees. I asked Tamash what's on the menu here in Zahon. We are producing about 1,000 to 2,000 portions every day. We are making the famous Hungarian goulash soup, yeah. of course. But since we were requested to put also some vegetarian food, we also have a beautiful uh, soup without meat.
All right, by now you probably know how I and my show staff feel about books, and more specifically, one's access to them. Library shelves, summer reading lists, the beloved newspaper backs, uh, they're one of the best ways to understand and preserve identity, both as an individual and as a member of a nation. Now, for Americans, there's unity in reading accounts of our past, like in To Kill a Mockingbird, or understanding our peers who have different life experiences than we have, like in All Boys Aren't Blue. Well, in Ukraine, the titles might be different, but many of the topics are the same, and the need to read is the same, especially now. The physical toll that this brutal war is taking on Ukraine's cities, towns, and countrysides is clear. Entire buildings have been reduced to rubble. Roads are torn up. Some towns are just completely gone. But Russian President Vladimir Putin is not just out to destroy Ukraine physically. He's gunning for its national identity and culture as well. Remember, he implied that Ukraine's not really a country. Many libraries have already been destroyed destroyed by Russian bombs, but those that remain are taking an even greater position at the center of their communities. They're providing shelter for families, survival lessons, imperative psychological help, and, of course, books. There are entire families taking shelter in libraries, pets and all. Children are using this temporary home as an opportunity to select new books, filling the tense hours with the words of Ukrainian authors. You can see a little girl holding her latest selection in this video. In good times, normal times, libraries are a haven. In Ukraine, they're trying to retain that sanctity today, but in a different way. Oksana Brui, the president of the Ukrainian Library Association, outlined what libraries across the nation are doing, saying, quote, refugee reception points, hostels and logistics points are organized here. Camouflage nets for the military are woven here. Home care courses are held here. Books are collected here to be transferred to libraries in neighboring countries that receive Ukrainian refugees, end quote. Well, soon we hope to resume our regular meetings of the Velshi Band Book Club. But until then, take a moment to reflect on your local library, understanding that it's more than just building uh, a building with books and rows of shelves. It's the repository of a nation's history and its connection to the rest of the world. Joining me now is retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's the former director of European Affairs for the National Security Council. Uh, Colonel, uh, you know, uh, I want to talk to you about this attack that occurred 12 miles from the Polish border, 20 miles from Lviv, west of the city of Lviv, where Ukrainians from central and eastern Ukraine have been going because it's thought of as the safe place. There are diplomats there. The journalists are there. And 12 miles from Poland, a NATO country, uh, this feels uh, like a very big escalation. In the wake of, of Vladimir Putin saying those supply lines from Europe into Ukraine are legitimate targets for him, he has made good on that promise. Your take on that, please. Well, I think the, the signaling there is that he's prepared to target those um, convoys and those su supply lines outside of Ukraine. That's what he's trying to warn us off. But this base is, uh, was almost inev an inevitable target. Yavoriv is the most important international uh, military training site in Ukraine. Uh, there are some similar footprints in uh, southern Ukraine for Odessa, for the for the Navy. But this is by far the, the biggest one. This is the one where the West invested the most resources uh, along with Ukraine to conduct uh, training with the Ukrainian forces for the past eight years and even earlier than that. So this is an important facility. Some reports suggest that there were dozens of uh, missiles rained down on this uh large large base and uh, did some damage it's you know still operational there are some uh, unfortunately um, too many lives lost and too many people injured but this base is still going to be uh, a key hub for uh, u.s 
uh, activities, meaning the, the supplies that come in will will uh, uh, pass through there and so forth. Um, so it's going to it's going to take some more punishment, I think, for the foreseeable future. And I'm just showing on the map here. It's the point that is on the most left, the westernmost point. That's where that attack was. You can see it's basically on the Polish border. Um, people were saying, not you, Colonel, but people were saying initially that this was going to be like Crimea. Uh, the, the, you know, Russia was going to recognize those two, uh, what they called independent breakaway republics in the east. And, you know, largely that was going to be it. And then people thought, well, maybe they'll, they'll try and replace the government, uh, in, in Kyiv. This is now a, a, what's looking like an invasion, uh, across and everywhere in the country of Ukraine. Does this change the dynamic for NATO and for the West as they discuss either greater sanctions as it relates to uh, energy that goes into Europe or, or, or more and stronger NATO activity? I don't think so. I think um, there'll have to be, unfortunately for, for the U.S. and NATO, there'll have to be much more uh, of a human toll before we, we get more heavily involved. But I think this is this was again, this was inevitable. These are strategic targets, um, strategic and operational targets that the Russians were going to hit when they had the bandwidth or they had the intelligence suggesting this uh, this was a ripe target. Um, right now, there's no troops even remotely clo- close to there. I mean, the closest troops are north of the border in Belarus. So it's not an area that's going to uh, see so when a you huge say- amount of fighting, but it's going to be the subject of uh, aerial bombardment. Got it. So uh, that escalation to you, the thing that'll change when you say uh, a, a, a greater toll, are you talking about uh, deaths in Ukraine or are you talking about the, these 2.7 plus million refugees who have now left the country? I think it's going to be a, a combination of, the, of those. I think the pressures building on uh, Eastern Europe, on Poland, are going to be enormous. Uh, this is going to be a sustained conflict, so they have to deal with an extra, you know, easily will be two two million people in in Poland probably within the next couple of weeks. Uh, so that's a heavy toll. Uh, the Poles are going to feel an, a lot of pressure to respond, and we we keep thinking about you know NATO responses, but it doesn't have to be a NATO response. Uh, these are uh, sovereign, independent states. They could take bilateral action to support Ukraine. They're already moving in that direction. Frankly, I, it's it's amazing that they've held out this long, probably uh, with regard to some pressure that NATO is bringing to bear to, to make sure that everybody stays uh, unified and, and cohesive uh, around a consensus. But that's not the way things are going to play out. Over a long period of time, there's a greater chance that the uh, European eastern flank is going to get more involved. And this is one of the ways I see a spillage occurring, that this does not remain a Russia-Ukraine war, but expands outwards. And of course, uh, internally to Ukraine, we have this very, very uh, rigid position of uh, no troops and no significant forces. That's possible. Uh, I think troops at this point would, would be very, very complicated and risky. But with regard to, to material support, there's a lot more that we could be doing. And I think it's going to be something devastating, maybe a chemical uh, weapons employment or just large losses of human right, life that eventually compel us to get more involved. May what you say not come true, but we are watching these things happen uh, in front of us. Uh, Colonel, thank you for joining us. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, former NSC director for European Affairs. Well, before Zelensky became a household name for the world and a hero to so many Ukrainians, Petro Poroshenko was the president of Ukraine. He joins me live from Kiev right after the break where he's fighting alongside the citizens he once served with. Stay with us.
We're back from Zahon, Hungary, along the border with Ukraine. As we speak, uh, Russian forces are edging closer to Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. Britain's defense ministry estimates Russian forces to be at least 15 miles from Kiev's center. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is still in the capital and during this fight. So is my next guest. Joining me now is Petro Poroshenko. He's the former president of Ukraine. He was the country's fifth president and was in office just before Zelensky. And we are seeing you the way we have seen you, uh, Mr. President, in your in your gear, in your body armor, uh, you have said that uh, while that fight is going on and Ukrainians are fighting strong, you do have less and less ammunition. You're not ready to give up. But what is it you need from from Western allies? First of all, I want to tell you that during the last seven days, <coughs> the Russian occupants and aggressor do not move ahead. Ukrainian brave armed forces keep them on the distance of 15 miles from Ukrainian capital. And this is right from this place. This is exactly 15 miles from Russian tanks. We are every single day under the Russian cruise missile and ballistic missile attack. And this morning is happening that the 30 Russian cruise missile from the Russian Black Sea Fleet was attacked. The uh, International Center for Peacekeeping and Security, where we have more than 35 kills and uh, more than 30 cruise missiles was sending to the points of NATO, NATO certified, which was just uh, 20 miles from the NATO border. And this is the terrorist attack exactly at the NATO border. And what we need now, we need, if on the first day during the war, we need just the anti-tank, anti-aircraft missile. We need uh, armed carrier and definitely we need the military jet. Today we should change it. And this is the high time for the Western world to open the second uh, front against Russia. Please learn the experience from the uh, World War II. And second front is not mean the NATO soldiers. This is mean that we need to be delivered the defensive weapons. This is need that we should have a, a anti-aircraft uh, complex. We should have a financial support. We should have a humanitarian support. And we should have a new sanction which motivate Putin to stop the aggression and to take back from our country. And the, we should have a special act, land lease act from nutrition to ammunition because we fighting here, not only for Ukrainian soil, we fighting here for our uh, partners and for NATO, for freedom and for democracy. And I want to use this opportunity, by the way, to thank all the international journalists who works here in Ukraine and deliver the truth about the Russian aggression in Ukraine. And I want to say condolences to the American people because just a couple of hours ago, Exactly in Irpeng, where is the zone of responsibility of my battalion, they was killed, the American journalist, and this is a disaster. This is the way how Putin provides the humanitarian crisis. Exactly in Bucha, which is near Irpeng, just yesterday it was buried the 67 um, corpse of the children and women unidentified, which was killed by Russian terrorists. And this is the crimes against humanity. This is just happening in the 21st century in the center of Europe. And can you imagine this has happened just 15 miles from this place? And uh, please, uh, I would President just Poroshenko, you know... 
You know these leaders. You know your your neighbors. Uh, you know, one of the things that that uh, Colonel Vindman just said to me is that while the, your neighbors are NATO countries, they are also independent countries and they may be able to do some of these things on their own, but that the world and NATO are not going to move into uh, the next stage of things unless the losses are greater than they are now. Um, what's your response to that? How many more people have to die or what needs to happen before you think your NATO and European neighbors will give you what you are asking for? Yesterday it was uh, uh, declared the official figures that more than 1,300 uh, Ukrainian soldiers were killed and definitely more than 1,000 civilians were killed. And uh, the, I would uh, want to cite the words of the former president of the Lithuania, Dalia Grybauskaita, when uh, she said that if you do not support uh, Ukraine now, the, you will fight in your own countries. And this is the approach uh, of uh, Putin. And Putin declared the war uh, to NATO, not to Ukraine, to the whole Western world. And Ukraine are now fighting here for NATO, for the whole the West. And Ukraine may be paying the biggest price we can ever imagine. The tons of blood of Ukrainian people and the uh, tons of uh, thousands of lives of Ukrainian people. And with this situation, we don't wait the NATO soldiers. NATO pilots or NATO seamen. We need just a military jet, old Soviet military jet MiG-29. And with this situation, I think that nobody knows who would be the next. If tomorrow he want to build up the ground corridor between the Black Sea, Crimea and Donetsk, tomorrow he want to uh, maybe to connect uh, Russia with the Kaliningrad uh, region through Lithuanian territory. Please don't allow to do that. Please, we should have this fighter. And with this fighter, Ukrainian pilots landed uh, down uh, already uh, for more than 80 Russian military plane. Uh -huh. plane and uh, only 16 planes during the la last 24 hours. And that's why we need the second front. At least supply us weapons and let us to make Putin weaker to protect uh -huh. your people, to protect your soil, to protect your values, to protect Europe and the world from the crazy maniac, Mr. Putin. Petro Poroshenko is the former president of Ukraine. Thank you for joining us, sir. That does it for me now. I will be reporting here at the Ukrainian border with Hungary throughout the day. You can find me hosting the Rachel Maddow Show all this coming week at 9 p.m. Eastern. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free.